listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you once again for the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you've brought us together to this divine appointment with your word. We'd ask you, Father, just to send your Holy Spirit to minister to us, to show us those lessons, those things, those insights that you have here for us, for our learning, that we might indeed grow in grace and the knowledge of you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get at it. We are in 1 Samuel. And we got uh, up to the end of 18, huh? I sure hope so, because I didn't bring last last week's notes. Okay. 1 Samuel 19. Obviously, uh, David's been getting popular. Saul's been getting jealous. It's getting more and more strained. And um, uh, Saul attempts to pin David to the wall with his javelin three different, on three different occasions. You, gen- you generally get the message that the man's unstable. Huh? He also reneged on his promise to give Merab, his oldest daughter, to uh, David. In fact, he gave, him, gave her to another. And he also starts putting conditions on, including this business with the Philistines, the Philistine foreskins thing. And uh, I won't try to get through that again. I behaved myself reasonably well in that kind of stuff. So we'll just jump in, chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Pretty gutsy order, even for a king. Here's David, much beloved by the people, very distinguished in his deeds. And... uh, But Saul shows his hand. He gives orders for him to be assassinated. This, of course, is a test of Jonathan's loyalty to his dad, isn't it? Or to David, as you will. In other words, puts Jonathan in a tough spot. As we read about Jonathan, don't lose sight of the fact that Jonathan was the heir to the throne. If there was anyone that should have been jealous of David, it wasn't Saul, it should have been Jonathan. Right? Because he was uh, in line. He was the son. He uh, would have been the heir. But... uh, you get the impression that that thought never even entered Jonathan's mind. He was just loyal, deeply committed to, to David. And on a very personal basis. He also may have been very much committed to the idea that David was anointed of the God of Israel. So there may, there's obviously a spiritual dimension to this too. But you do get the impression, as you read Jonathan, that it was also very personal, very committed to David, very loyal, and a, a very crucial issue. Verse 2, But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore I pray thee, take heed to to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. So David gets tipped off. Jonathan goes on, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will talk with my father of thee, and what I see, that I will tell thee. And Jonathan spoke good of David unto Saul, his father, and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been toward thee very good. We're going to discover, as David, he not only has up till now, but even in some very unusual circumstances we'll come to in the next few chapters, David handles himself pretty pretty well. 
because uh, David is uh, fearful. He's obviously going to be uh, increasingly on fl in flight here as a fugitive, but he's going to um, have several opportunities to uh, injure Saul, and does, it chooses not to. And uh, David's attitude's pretty straightforward. He figured that's God's problem. He's been anointed king. Saul's presently king. Whatever's going to have to happen. Uh, David's not going to be a usurper. He's not going to put down Saul to establish his own dynasty. That's God's problem, and God will deal with it. So David handles himself pretty well. And, of course, Saul goes from bad to worse, as we'll see. Anyway, Jonathan intercedes. Jonathan tries to, to get um, his father to uh, repent of his attitude here. And uh, David's works have been very good. Verse 5, For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it, and didst rejoice. Why then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Tough arguments. Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. So Saul apparently repents. If it was sincere, it's obviously very temporary, as we will see. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. I think David's probably smart enough to keep a, a weather eye to windward here. huh? Verse 8, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. And David played with his hand. So one in the room, we got David with his lyre or harp, right? And the other in the room, we got Saul fingering his javelin. Can you, get, you get the picture? Rather, that's what we call a dramatic moment. Huh? Saul sought to spite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. That's got to make an impression on the young man, huh? Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. Remember Michael. See, she was not the eldest. She was next, and, uh, and uh, she, did, you know, she was given to David. So Michael is David's wife, and we're going to hear more about her later. But at least here, she's being very helpful. She's tipped him off. And uh, it's interesting that both of Saul's children are loyal to David rather than their father. It's provocative. Not just Jonathan. Jonathan has a more enduring relationship. Michael's going uh, to have some problems later. But anyway, Michael also. She let, uh, verse 12, she let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And that business of flee fleeing and escaping will occupy us for half a dozen chapters yet. So there's going to be much more of this sort of thing. In fact, it gets more and more intense as we go. And Michael took an image. By the way, that's a teraphim, a household idol, which raises a couple of questions, right? What's it doing there? Hmm? This whole idea of the idol implies compromise in the home. Hmm? And uh, 
here's David and his wife, and there's an idol in the house. Probably a casual thing, because David's heart was right with the Lord. Then what's the idol doing in the house? Was David compromised? I don't think so. Was the household compromised? Yes. What's the impact of that? It apparently impressed their children subsequently, like Solomon. What got Solomon into trouble late in his life? Well, anyone with 700 wives and 300 concubines probably have some problems. <laughs> you know what the Arabs say about women? One is too many and ten not enough, right? Anyway. Yeah, bad, bad. Anyway. But Solomon gets in trouble with idols, and it could be that part of that may be back in his household, in the household situation. In any case, Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair upon its head and covered it with a cloth. In other words, she makes it look like David's home ill. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, say, bring him to, up to me in the bed that I may slay him. When the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair for its head. So uh, Michael, uh, you know, gave David the advantage of some lead time because all this took time and it all gave David a chance to put some distance between him and, and home. Verse 17, Saul said to Michael, Why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that he has escaped? Strange phrase. What makes David Saul's enemy? David doesn't do anything to Saul. But he's rationalizing, of course. And Michael answered, Saul, he said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? So she's covering herself, understandably. Verse 18, So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. Now, Naoth is a community uh, in Ramah where the school of the prophets was situated. We're going to hear more about the school of the prophets here. And uh, Okay. So Samuel and David are in Naoth, and uh, verse 20, And Saul sent messengers to take David. Now, this is, I think this is one of the funnier scenes. These messengers, these assassins, are sent by Saul, right? They show up in Naoth. And the Holy Spirit that comes upon them. Hmm? When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. By the way, they apparently joined the school. <laughs> I think that's great, don't you? <laughs> Saul's going to run out of messengers. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. <laughs> and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. <laughs> then went he also to Ramah, and there came to and came to a great well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And guess what? <laughs> Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore they say, in other words, it gave rise to a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? 
I think it's pretty funny. I think it's great. So you can include that chapter in your studies on gifts of the Spirit. A little different slant on things. And we'll move on to 1 Samuel 20. The intervention of Jonathan. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? Now see, while Saul is in Ramah with Samuel, David splits and goes back to Gibeah, the capital. That's where you would find Jonathan. Okay. <clears throat> and he says before Jonathan, what have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? David's puzzled. Why should Saul be so after him? He said unto him, God forbid that thou shalt, that, that, that thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Jonathan is relying on the oath that Saul took back in chapter 19, verse 6. See? He doesn't know of the events from verse 8 to the end of the chapter of last chapter. You follow me? Jonathan still thinks that Saul is... Uh, Repentant and and uh, gave him a you know uh, gave him an oath. Okay, so what David's going to do is devise a plan to really understand what Saul's attitude is, and that's what's going to follow here. Verse three. David swore moreover and said, "Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes." And he saith, "Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be uh, he be grieved." But truly, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan to David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will do it, uh, even for thee. So David said unto Jonathan, verse 5, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at the table. But let me go, that I might hide myself in the field unto the third day at evening. Now you should understand that uh, the new moon was a celebration. It was both a civil and a religious observance. The new moon, the new month, if you will. And uh, uh, the idea was a, a sacrificial meal. You'll find this all through the uh, Torah, Numbers 10, Numbers 28, as ordinances about celebrating the new moon. The beginning of each month was a festival, and they had a sacrifice, but it also was a big feast. And that's, and that's when the families got together, and that's what he's making reference to here. And uh, it's clear that uh, David's family had a, they had a practice of having a family reunion on these, on these celebrations. Okay, so what David's going to do, he's not going to show up the first day. The first day won't be a problem because Saul will assume that there's some religious reason for him not to. Maybe he wasn't cleansed to serve. There's reasons that the first day. But by the time the second or third day rolls around, uh, Saul's getting concerned, as you'll see. But anyway, uh, David's going to hide in the field until the third day uh, evening. Verse 6, if, if thy father at all miss me, then said David, uh, say, then say, David earnestly asked leave of uh, me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. In other words, the first night he would be with his own family in Bethlehem rather than be at Gibeah. See? <clears throat> Verse seven: If he say thus, it is well; thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? Jonathan said, Far be it uh, from thee. For if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would I not tell it to thee? 
And said David and Jonathan, Who shall tell me? And of what and what if thy father answer thee roughly? And Jonathan said unto David, Come, let us go out into the field. And they went both out into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be if if, uh, if there be good toward David, then I and uh, and I then send not unto thee, and show it to, unto thee, the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee as he hath been with thy father, with my father. And thou shalt not only, while I yet live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, uh, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. So he's making his deal. Hmm? It's interesting that Jonathan acknowledges here David's destiny to be king. And he's just reconfirming with David that he will have safety and his family when David does take the throne. That's really what's, uh, what the, the, the issue of it is, you know, surfacing here. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. Verse 17. Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand. And thou shalt remain by the stone Ezel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, uh, then come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord liveth. But if I say to the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee, go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. So that's the code. He's going to do a little archery practice, and when he sends the runner to go get the arrows, he'll yell an instruction that will be a code to David to know whether to come at safe or whether to get out of here. Verse 23, and as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon was come, the king sat down to eat. The king sat down upon a seat as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul spoke not anything that day, for he thought, something hath befallen him. He is not clean, uh, surely he is not clean, meaning he's not ceremonial clean to celebrate the festival. It came to pass on the next day, when it was uh, the, uh, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why cometh not the son of Jesse to the table, neither yesterday nor today? And Jonathan answered uh, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. That would be reasonable, because Bethlehem was his hometown, and his own family was having a, you know, a, a new moon celebration. Verse 29. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in thine eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not unto the king's table. Now here's the key thing. This will reveal Saul's attitude. Verse 30. 
Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said unto him, Thou son of the perverse? <laughs> That's interesting. I think he is, isn't he? Is he the son of a perverse? You said it, Dad. Huh? <laughs> Thou son of the, the perverse, rebellious woman. Oh, I see. Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own shame and unto the shame of thy mother's nakedness? <laughs> For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Why shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him. At who? At Jonathan. Wow. Throws a javelin at his own son. Saul is obviously really uh, becoming unglued. Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. I guess Jonathan finally gets the picture. Yeah. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. <laughs> I can imagine. And did eat no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. And it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him. And he said unto his lad, Run, find now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad did run, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad was come to the place where the arrow of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond thee? And, John, and, and uh, Jonathan cried after the lad, Make speed, haste, haste. Stay not. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. Who's he telling to hurry? David, you betcha. But the lad knew uh, not anything, and only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said unto him, Go, carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. They kissed one another, wept one with another, until David controlled himself. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace for as much as we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went, uh, went uh, into the city. So from this point on, we have, while the covenant of Jonathan is confirmed, we have David an outcast and a fugitive and on the run. And uh, the rest of the book of First Samuel are his adventures as a fugitive fleeing Saul. And uh, the rest of the book, from here to the end of the first Samuel, gives rise, well, first of all, to a lot of interesting adventures, but also gives rise to lessons on prayer and turning to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and praising the Lord. And here are some of the Psalms that apply to the next few chapters. Psalm 18 34, 52, 54, 56 and 57, 63, 124, 138, and 142. Those are all, uh, that's your homework assignment <laughs> for the rest of the book here. Now, David's going to flee to a place called Nob. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, it's also known as Mount Scopus. It's about one mile north of Jerusalem. 
And that's where the, it's a, there's a community of priests there on Mount Scopus. And uh, what David's going to do is he's rounding up a small band of men. And he's going to flee to Nob. He's going to pull off a, some, a, a, a cover story. He's going to lie. And that lie is going to end up endangering the lives of these In fact, kills them. It ends up causing a death to the priests. He doesn't realize that at the time. And one of the lessons here is that you don't lie. God went on to that. But in any case, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, then came David to Nob, to uh, Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business about which I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what, uh, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. In other words, being ceremonially clean. In other words, there wasn't regular bread there, but there was the, sacrifice, the ceremonial bread, the, the, the bread that was intended for the table of showbread in the tabernacle. That was uh, lawful only for the priests to eat. And um, you'll find this in Exodus 25, uh, verse 30, and Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. The whole idea of the showbread and what it's for. Okay. Now, um, it's interesting that Jesus himself makes reference to this in uh, Matthew 12, where he's, uh, you know, his disciples are eating on the Sabbath day. They're gleaning, which was legal, but they were doing it on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees made a point of it. And in Jesus' rebuttal to them, he makes reference to the fact that uh, in David's day, even David, David was not allowed to eat the showbread, and yet he points out that moral law overrules the ceremonial law in effect. And, of course, Jesus' point is he goes on as someone greater than David there, namely Jesus Christ. And that's the whole lesson of Matthew 12 and Mark 2, those issues come up. Moral precedence over ceremony. In any case, David gets the showbread here to... Uh, to uh, uh, Feed his, feed his uh, band of men. They've answered the priest, verse 5, saying, Of truth, women have been uh, kept from us for about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, and there was, uh, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord, and put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. So Doeg's going to be up to no good. Doeg is there. It says he was detained before the Lord. We're not sure what that means. He might have been there for ritual cleansing. He might have been there as part of a, a ritual or a rigmarole to uh, inspect for leprosy, as in Leviticus 13. Several reasons. We don't know. He was there for some purpose. But Doeg was a Edomite, but he, he was the chiefest of uh, Saul's herdsmen. But he also, the word Doeg means the strong one. He has a violent nature, as we're going to discover in the next chapter. So Doeg is going to end up uh, disclosing what just went on to Saul, and all kinds of trouble will come because of it. So David, verse 8, David said unto Ahimelech, Is there not uh, here under thine hand spear or a sword? In other words, David wants a weapon. He's got bread. He's on the run. He's got a small band of guys with him. He also is looking for a weapon. There's a very interesting weapon that's being stored with the priests at Nob. 
See, David says, these are not uh, 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 under thine hand a, a spear or a sword. For I have neither brought my sword or my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. See, David is posing as if this is an official journey. And by doing so, he's endangering Elhimelech as giving him aid and shelter. Do you follow me? He's posing as if he's on king's business. The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, if, if, if thou wilt take that, take it, for there's no other except that here. David said, There's none like that. Give it to me. So David's got Goliath's sword. Now, what makes this really funny, a little later, he's going to, he's going to flee to Gath, who, which was Goliath's hometown, and he's going to walk in there with Goliath's sword. And he's recognized. No kidding. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. But anyway, David's got Goliath's sword. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, great, there's great theater in that. That's, that's terrific. So, uh, okay. Verse 10, David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to... Achish, the uh, king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? It sounds like that tune really got around, even the land of the Philistines. Right? <laughs> David laid up these words in his heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Now he's pretending to be insane or having a fit and being un... Because since he's been recognized, he's, he's got to find some way to cover himself here. And Achash said to his servants, Lo, see, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And, of course, then David, in verse chapter 22, David will split. And, uh, okay. By the way, uh, uh, Psalm 34 is from this period. Uh, the uh, Achish is also called Abimelech in Psalm 34. I might mention that title means father of the king. It's not a name. It's a title. It's a dynastic title used by the Philistines. It occurs with both Abraham and Isaac. In uh, Genesis 20, Abraham goes to a one Abimelech pretends his wife is his sister. He's only half-lying. He was his half-sister. And you have that whole incident in Genesis 20. And also, in Gen- six chapters later, Isaac pulls the same stunt with uh, Abimelech. But again, Abimelech is not a name. It's a title, a Philistine title. So whatever that's worth. So, so that won't confuse you. In any case, we're now in chapter 22, moving right along. And he's going to here. he's going to fly, fly to Moab. David is going to fly to Moab. Why would David be comfortable in Moab? Great-grandma. Right on. Boy, sharp group, sharp group. Moab was the home of Ruth, right? Ruth and Boaz. Great-grandma, yeah. And uh, so um, that's uh, right on. So he would feel very comfortable. What's he doing in Moab? He's going to get his parents safe. See, He's worried about his parents, so. Chapter 22, verse 1, Therefore, uh, David therefore departed from there and escaped to, uh, to the cave Adullam. And uh, when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. See, his father's family is in danger too, so he's going to try to make, establish their safety. Verse 2, And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered themselves unto him. <laughs> sort of figures, doesn't it, right? How many here are not happy with the current king, you know? 
Well, everyone's in distress and debt and discontented, and, you know. Yeah, there's a, no, uh, let me not give the wrong impression. I'm not suggesting that David uh, uh, rallied around the discontents because there's no evidence ever anywhere that he did saw any injury. He left it all to the Lord. But he did obviously get a following of those that were looking forward to a new administration and uh, gathered themselves together in him, and he came, became captain over them. And they're with him about 400 men. That's quite a band. They're going to grow to about 600 shortly. That's a lot of guys. David went there, from there to Mizpah of Moab. And uh, Mizpah really means watchtower. It's probably a fortress in Moab. So he found a secure place that Saul was not likely to, to molest them there. He said to the uh, king of Moab, let, thy, let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the stronghold. Now, by the way, the, uh, and the prophet Gad said unto him, Abide not in the stronghold, depart, get thee into the land of Judah. And David departed and came to the forest of Hereth. Now, it's interesting, the word for stronghold is Mesuda. And some people speculate that there might be a relationship between this and Masada. But it's speculation, but I share it because it's interesting. And uh, Masada, of course, about 1,320 feet above the, the, the uh, shoreline of the Dead Sea. And uh, it uh, is obviously the place that has a lot of more recent history. Uh, but it, it, there may be some relationship here. Okay. Um, These priests that helped David are in big trouble. Because Saul, here's, well, verse 6. When Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, uh, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said, now see, he had his, his, Gibeah was his capital, but he happened to be at Ramah when he heard this message. And he got his servants there. And he, in verse 7, And Saul said unto his servants who stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will a son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you uh, uh, have conspired against me? And there is none that disclosed to me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse? And there is none of you that is sorry for me or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up uh, my servant against me to lie in wait and then stay? And on he goes. A lot of accusations here, all wrapped up together. He's accusing his son of disloyalty. He's accusing his subjects of apathy. And he's accusing David of conspiracy. So Saul's coming unwound. He's coming unwound. Notice also, there's another subtlety here. Hey, you Benjamites. See, the ones that surround him were from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Because he was a Benjamite, right? Both Saul's in the Bible were Benjamites, right? Saul of Tarsus later, and of course this Saul. He's arguing that the son of Jesse is not likely to treat you guys fairly. Why? Because he's from the tribe of Judah. See, he's appealing to the intertribal rivalries here. But in any case, he's just really upset. And then verse 9, Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Here's Doag, blab, 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 huh? 
Verse 11, And the king sent to Ahimelech the priest, the son of Hitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were in Nob. And they came all of them to the king. Had no choice. Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Hitub. And he answered, Hear my, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him? See, in other words, the priests had the ephah. They had the... The, the privilege and the, they had the role of inquiring to the Lord. You see, and so they not only gave him food, they gave him a thing, but he also inquired of the Lord for David. See, Saul's really upset about all of this. That he should rise against me to lie in wait as this day. And Elimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? And goeth at thy bidding and is honorable in thy house. Ahimelech messes up here. He inadvertently defends David. You see, he's, he probably was in trouble anyway, but he also is arguing for David's loyalty. Did that impress Saul? Okay. We'll see how it impressed him here in a minute. Okay. Verse 15. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto this servant, nor unto all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. That's uh, a little rough. Verse 16. Uh, and Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. His father's house, this is in effect the uh, fulfillment, is going to be ful the fulfillment of the prophecy that uh, was against uh, Eli's house, right? We're back. Remember the in, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, that under Eli's house, there was a prophesied judgment. And we're going to see that uh, here uh, undertaken by Saul. That does not relieve Saul. God's sovereignty does not relieve Saul of his accountability for this misdeed. Very important idea. See, even the... Uh, well, anyway... Verse 17, the king said unto the footmen that were about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Interesting, the king orders them to kill the priests, and the servants won't do it. He's the king, but they also are smarter than that. They're not about to raise their sword against a priest of the God of Israel. Okay? Verse 18, the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five, eighty-five persons who did wear the linen ephod. See, Doeg was an Edomite, among other things. And uh, <laughs> verse 19, and Nob, the city of priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women and children and sucklings and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. So Doeg goes at it. Verse 20, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar. He escaped and fled uh, after David. That's going to be a big break, because Abiathar will not only bring David up to date what's going on, Abiathar will bring to David the ephod, that is, will give David the capability of inquiring before the Lord through a priest of the Most High. Verse 21, Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests, and David said to Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there. 
that he would surely tell Saul, I've occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. David's got an interesting attitude. It was my fault. Then blame Saul. You know, he doesn't say that son of a guy or whatever, right? David says, my fault. I knew it that day. See, because of that whole thing, that whole, he endangered the house by him being there and by getting that help, even though he used to he it under masquerade. But what does David say to Abiathar? Verse 23, Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> you better stick with me because you're a marked man anyhow, you know? So let's see, if we're going to die today, let's die together, in effect. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. Oh, different attitude. Hey, stick with me, we're both marked, but he's also acknowledged he's under the protection of the Most High. Interesting. Is he overstating the case? Who's been anointed to be the king of Israel? By whom? By God. Did God know what he's doing? Sure. Reminds me of uh, Abraham. Genesis 22. The Lord wants him to offer Isaac as an offering for sin. What's David's attitude? What is uh, uh, Abraham's attitude? God, it's your problem. You promised that Isaac would have children. You want to kill him? Your problem. You've got to raise him from the dead. Abraham's belief in the resurrection of Isaac is what saved him. That's what that's from Hebrews 11, Galatians 3, and Romans 4. Tied all together, and it's interesting. What's Abraham's? God, it's your problem. It's called faith. Huh? Gee, we snuck through another chapter. Boy, we're on a roll tonight, huh? First Samuel 23. By the way, it gets better. City of Kila, we're going to see rescued here. Verse, chapter 23, verse 1, And they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Kila, and they rob the threshing floors. The Philistines were very shrewd. They would wait until the harvest was gathered and on the thrashing floors and processed. That was the time to strike. You know, when do you, when do you hit the bank? When payrolls do, right? So the Philistines aren't foolish, you know. You've got a monopoly in iron. You've got to figure out a way to capitalize on it. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite the... Ooh, here's something interesting. David doesn't draw his sword and head out there. What does he do first? Inquires the Lord. Not once, but twice. Once good, a whole lot's a lot better, I suppose. But no, seriously. Verse 2, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? The Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Kilah. David's men said unto him, Behold, uh, we are afraid. We are here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Saying, hey, we've got enough problems. We've got Saul after us. You want to go down there and get those guys. So what does David do again? See, his men are nervous, so he wants to really, you know, underline it. David inquired of the Lord yet again. The Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Kilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. Well, that's got to help the press notices too, I suppose. Verse 6. It came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kilah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David was come to Kilah. And Saul said, 
God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. See, Saul's view is that if David is in Kila, he's trapped. If he's there, I've got him. Saul makes a major mistake that we all make. He assumes that opportunity is a mandate. Now, we're looking at it in a negative sense here watching Saul, but the principle applies to all of us. As believers, we should not be deceived into thinking that an open door is a clear indication of God's will. We all fall into that trap. Someone rings the door and has a really needy ministry he wants you to donate to. Or you pick up the phone and someone's got a really neat opportunity for you. Do you accept it? No, you pray about it. Opportunity is not a mandate. There's more opportunity you can possibly address. And there's specific ones that God would have you address. It ain't all of them. And it ain't the guy that calls next, necessarily. But anyway, uh, Saul, the same thing. Saul's got an opportunity here. David appears to have got himself in a box canyon. So he's going to go and jump on it. I lost my place. Hey, thank you. Saul called all the people together to war, to go down to Kila, to besiege David and his men. Who's watching out for David and his men? God. That makes a majority, huh? Verse 9. David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. He said to Biathar the priest, Bring here the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Kila to destroy the city for my sake. He's got a couple of questions here. He's really got two questions. He not only wants the outcome, but he also knows that at Kila, even though he has delivered them from the Philistines, there are people there that are loyal to Saul. So it's not as if they're in his pocket. You follow me? So he wants to know two things. Will Saul pursue? And then secondly, will the people betray him? He's got two aspects here. You know, one of it is Saul's intention. The other part of it is his own uh, constituency. He's taken the, you know, he, he wants to find out where he's in. So verse 11. Uh, well, for, for verse 10. The, the, then said David, O Lord God of Israel, my servant had certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Kilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Kilah deliver me up into his hand? And will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. David's asking the Lord two questions. Saul coming, and will they betray me? The Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, will the men of Kilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. Two questions, he gets yes answers to both of them. So then David and his men, verse 13, who were about 600... Picked up a couple of hundred here, huh? Arose and departed out of Kila and went wherever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Kila, and he forbore to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness and strongholds, uh, and he remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul uh, sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. So David, so David and his men are in the Judean wilderness. It's a barren, desolate, rugged terrain. It's between the hill country and the Dead Sea. A lot of ravines and caves and so forth. Tough turf. It was used by the Jewish zealots twice. The first rebellion against Rome in uh, A.D. 66 through 73, about the time of the, and subsequent to the fall of Jerusalem. 
And then a second revolt, about 132 through 135 A.D. This is the area that the zealots, uh, where the Romans had to, 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 to get them out. And the wilderness of Ziph, by the way, is about four miles southeast of Hebron, if you uh, have a geographic sense of that. Now, during all of this, Jonathan is going to come and encourage David. Jonathan's a unique guy. Verse 15, saw, and David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in the forest. Or the word Horish will run into it means forest, incidentally. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the forest and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father uh, shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul my father knoweth. Interesting. An interesting uh, uh, commitment. This is from Jonathan, who would have been heir to the, under Saul. I think it's interesting. He, in effect, renews the covenant with him. Solomon, in one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 18.24, says, There is a friend that's closer than a brother. Jonathan was that kind of a friend. Where do you think Solomon learned that? From his dad. I would think, I think, you know, it would smack of Jonathan's relationship. They made a covenant before the Lord, verse 18, and David abode in the forest, and Jonathan went to his house. So they renewed the covenant again. Verse 19, Then came up the Ziphites to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in the strongholds in the forest, in the hill of Hekiah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now, we've got a lot of names here. Let's see, let's sort it through a little of this. By the way, you've got to understand something else, just to give you a picture here. Who knew this terrain probably better than anybody? David. Why? He was a shepherd as a child. Isn't God neat? Yeah. I don't think David knew when he was a kid that that knowledge was going to, you know, if you're, if you're an infantry, you know, the whole idea is knowing the terrain, right? Well, David knew the terrain. The wilderness of Moan, we're going to talk about barren, it's a barren territory. It's near the city of Maon, about five miles south of Ziph. You come across the word Arabah, which means wasteland. It's a desert area in the, in the wilderness of Judea. The word Jeshimon means desert or waste. It's the wilderness southeast of Hebron. So, and, we're going to, and we're going to see some more of that in chapter 26. Anyway, let's see. Where do I get? We got down here to about... Uh, I lost my place again. 20, thank you. Now, therefore, O king... Come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. In other words, these guys are trying to grease it with a king, huh? And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord, for ye have compassion on me. Go, I pray thee, and prepare ye yet, and know and see his face where his haunt is, and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. In other words, Saul doesn't grab his guys and shoot down there because he knows David's pretty wily, huh? Subtle, the term here. Well, uh, so he's letting these guys go down and really reconnoiter and make sure they know what they're doing. Verse 20, they see therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places that he hideth himself and come ye again unto me with certainty and I will go with you and it shall come to pass if he be in the land that I will search him throughout all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul and David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah on the south of Jeshimon. And Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they, told, and they told David, Wherefore he came down to a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul heard that he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. 
And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, and Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take him. In other words, they succeed in surrounding David. Now, David's got 600, but I guess he was outnumbered, huh? Like 3,000. 3,000. It's a lot. I mean, Saul and Saul's side, that is. Who's watching after David? God. Let's see what he does. Saul's got David surrounded. He's ready to go in for the kill. Verse 27. But there came a messenger to Saul saying, Haste thee and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. <sighs> Duty calls. I don't know if the Philistines realized they were doing the will of God by invading the land. But they sure were. Verse 28. And there, wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David, went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place Selahama Lakoth which means rock of escape. It's, it's a commemorate, to, to, to commemorate their escape. Verse 29 in the Hebrew Bible is part of chapter 24. Okay? So we'll consider 29, part of chapter 24. Verse 24. David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. En Gedi. It's a, a neat place. If you're... Um, Going to Israel, and you go down the the uh, Dead Sea area, you'll obviously want to probably hit Masada, maybe want to hit, hit Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But among the things you'll want to do is stop in Gedi. It's an oasis, and it's just about due east of Hebron. But it's quite a nice walk because you go up among the uh, uh, here's all this arid desert, and yet this this canyon is just green and rich, and it's full of wildlife. In fact, it's a wildlife preserve. And you, you find all kinds of, uh, uh, of uh, interesting creatures there that are mentioned in the Bible. And it's, it, there's also full of caves. Um, the limestone cliffs there are just full of caves. So it's, a, it's an ideal place to try to, to hide, if you will. Um, so anyway, uh, it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. These wild goats are over there, by the way. It's fun to go with the camera because you'll see them all through the rocks. They're, they're, they're very colorful. And the conies and all the rest. Um, verse 3. And he came to the sheep coats by the way. There was a cave. <laughs> and Saul went in to cover his feet and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. He happened to pick the cave where David was hiding. Now, in your King James translation, it says he went there to cover his feet. I don't know what it said. I forgot to check the more modern translations. <laughs> Attend to his needs. Well, we would call that a bowel movement. <laughs> and it's a tribute to the King James and uh, translators in 1611. They felt they would indulge in a euphemism. Also in Judges chapter 3, verse 24, you'll find them covering their feet. What they're doing is attending to their needs. Huh? Is that what the nearly inspired version says? Okay. Okay. So here's, here's Saul attending to his needs. And he doesn't realize it, but he happens to be in a, in a labyrinth of cave work here that David and his men are hiding. Hmm. 
Verse 4, And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver mine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good to thee. In other words, hey, David, God has given you this opportunity. You can solve your whole problem right now. What did David do? David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe stealthily. I have no idea how he pulled this one off. I mean, I'm going to leave it to your fertile imaginations to imagine how David cut off the hem, the hem of Saul's garment. Now, this gives me a a wonderful excuse to depart a little bit. I know you're not used to me taking detours. Let's talk about hems a little bit. The Greek word for hem is krespidon, but the Hebrew word is shul, like a shawl, shul. The word means hem, border, fringe, or bottom edge of a skirt or a train. We gather so far. You and I are not familiar with hems because we live in a different culture. If, uh, if you're on an airliner, how do you tell the rank of your pilot? By his sleeves, right? We're used to sleeves. Stripers? In the Navy, what's a four-striper? Heavy dude, huh? Yeah. Captain in the middle. Infantry is one thing. Captain in the Navy is something else. We think of stripers. That's our, or sometimes shoulder, sometimes collar, but we're used to, we're not used to, we don't wear robes in the style of this culture. So you need to understand a little bit about hems. It would be useful to understand this here. Um, hems are a symbol of rank or authority in ancient Israel. There were fringes ordained on the Levitical garments. You'll find that in Numbers 15. First, let's just pop over there to give you a feeling of it. Numbers 15. There's dozens of others. I'll just take one to give you the flavor of this sort of thing. Numbers 15, we'll take verses 38 and 39. Numbers 15, 38. Speak unto the children of Israel. The Lord says to Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations that they put upon the fringe of their borders a cord of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that they may look upon it, remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, that ye seek not after your own heart or after your own eyes, and so forth. And he goes on to instruct. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 22, Exodus 28, Exodus 39. You'll also find in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, God says to Israel, I spread my shul over thee, my shawl, my train, my, my, my robe over thee. What does that mean? I'm giving you my protection. I'm, I'm, I'm covering you. Okay. When we get to uh, Genesis 37, you remember a guy by the name of uh, Jacob had 12 sons? And one of his sons was named Joseph. And he gave Joseph a coat that got him in a lot of trouble, right? You and I, the, the, the term is variegated coat. The way you've probably learned it from your Sunday school picture books is that it was a coat of many colors. It's not clear it necessarily was. It might have been seamless. The word is the, the Hebrew word. We're not sure what it means. Whatever it was, it was certainly an element of favoritism because that's what caused the brothers to be envious, and you know the story of Joseph. But the seamlessness of uh, Joseph's coat is interesting because there's another person that comes along with a seamless coat. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And Joseph is over a hundred ways a type of Christ. That may be one of them. And uh, we know, of course, that Jesus' uh, robe was not torn, remember? They divided up everything else, but they wouldn't tear his robe. They cast dice for it, remember? That was predicted 
right, in the Psalms, and fulfilled by the Romans. Very accommodating of the Romans. Why was it not torn? Because the temple veil was torn. He's our high priest. He was not torn. The temple was. There's a whole, there's an imagery thing there. You can dig it into John 19 and Matthew 27 if you want to dig into that. But I'd like to share with you another thing, which I like to call a touching situation, where the Lord is approached by a, a, a leader, a guy by the name of Jairus, remember? He was, a, he was a, a Jewish leader. His daughter was ill and dies before Christ gets there. So she's dead, right? On the way to Jairus' daughter, by the way, those of you, this may not be familiar, Matthew, uh, this is in uh, uh, Mark 6, Matthew 9, and uh, Mark, Mark 5, and you'll find it several places. But primarily uh, Mark 5 and, and Matthew 9 is what I'm thinking of. But anyway, as, as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' daughter, there's a woman with an issue of blood, remember? And she has this idea. She has been... She spent all her money. She's broke because for 12 years she has been trying to get healed of this issue of blood, right? But here's Jesus. She's in the crowd and she knows if she just touches what? The hem of his garment. Why the hem of his garment? Because that's where his authority, that's where his power was viewed as being by the culture. See? See the hem again? So she wants to touch it. And of course she touches it, gets healed. He turns around. Thy faith has made thee whole. Question. What was the nationality of the woman? Very good. Syrophoenician. She was a Gentile. How do we know she's a Gentile? Because she had an issue of blood, and if she was Jewish, she would not be allowed in the congregation. Right? She would be violating the Levitical law. So if she's in the crowd with an issue of blood, she's a Gentile. Mark, when he recounts this, mentions, adds another detail. Right at the end of the story, just about the time you see it, just like the one in Matthew, you read it about the same, except Mark throws you a little corkscrew at the end, a little curve, a little postscript. Mark says to you, oh, by the way, see, Christ, after that, it's, he gets to Jairus. They're moaning and wailing. He says, get out of here. Raises her from the dead, right? Fabulous story. And then Mark throws one little fact at you. How old was Jairus' daughter? Twelve. So she's Twelve. She was born when the issue of blood of the woman. What's the Holy Spirit got that there for? For you to link the two stories. Jesus Christ was on his way to raise the daughter of Zion. Title for Israel. And on the way there, he heals by faith a Gentile woman. What's the type of? The kingdom. The church. The woman, the type of church. He's, he is sent to and responding to the needs of Israel, but incidentally, so to speak, heals a Gentile woman. I think it's interesting if you're into typology. But I, I get into all this because of the, 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 hem, the hem issue, right? Let's talk about another type of the church. Let's go to Ruth, David's great-grandmother. Or whatever, whatever the count is. Ruth is instructed by her mother, her Jewish mother-in-law to go to Boaz that night at the thrashing floor and wait till midnight. And she goes and says to Boaz, put your shul, your shawl over me. She's not propositioning. It sounds like that if you're not everything. She's saying, you're my kinsman. I'm asking you to do the kinsman redeemer part. Take that role. Why the shul? Why the shawl? Because in the hem of that shawl is his genealogy, is his authority, it's his badge. It's, his, it's like his merit badges. 
It's his family thing. See, he's ask, she's asking for him to do the kinsman part. And of course they do. They get married in Bethlehem. And they're the great grandparents of David, so to speak. And of course their shepherd's fields are also where some shepherds get a visit one night. That we call Christmas. But anyway. Jesus is our near kinsman. We ask him to cover us with his shul to assume responsibility for us. See the model? He's our goel, a kinsman redeemer. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, God also speaks of his train. The word there in the King James is train. It's also the same word, shul. So that's Boaz. That, 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 excuse me, that's uh, um, Hems. Now, here we are in Gedi, and David cut off the skirt, that is the hem, the shul, of Saul's robe. That included Saul's genealogy and his authority as king. David, after he does this, becomes conscience-stricken because he realized he has taken a sword against the Lord's, the Lord's anointed. See, he's not respecting Saul, he's respecting the throne, and he's upset about that because he feels that symbolically he's taken the throne away from Saul by doing that. Saul understands this, as we'll see here in uh, uh, shortly. Saul will recognize the symbolic significance of what David has done. So let's just continue here. Uh, we got down to verse 5, verse 6. <clears throat> and he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. See, David is conscious of the fact that this is the Lord's anointed. So David restrained his servants with these words and permitted them not to rise against Saul, but Saul rose up out of the cave and went his way. David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord and my king. See, visualize Saul now down in the valley. David is, if he's not on a ride, he's got an advantage, but he can physically see him where he can talk to him from a point position of safety. David rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him, and David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. David said to Saul, Why hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy harm? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord hath delivered thee today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me to kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David's got a pretty convincing argument here, right? Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and kill thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, that I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. Visualize Saul down there looking up. And here's David holding up the hem of his skirt. I had a chance. I could have killed you, Saul. He cut this off to prove that he had the opportunity. But makes the point that he, he wishes Saul no harm. It goes on, verse 12. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee. But mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, and my hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? 
The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. It came to pass when David had ceased speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, Thou art more righteous than I am, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord hath delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee with good for what thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. That's quite an admission for Saul to make publicly. Is Saul sincere here? He probably is, but it's very temporary. He's probably sincere at the moment. Well, who can guess? But I, I, would, I would grant him that. But I'm going to argue it's very, very temporary, as we will find when we get to chapter 26. But interesting verse 20, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, if thou wilt not cut off my seed after me and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. Saul has two requests. Preserve my family, preserve my family name. Interesting position for Saul to take. Acknowledge that he's going to be king. And by the way, when you're king, you know, he wants his protection. What does David do? Verse 22. He, he, he swore. He swore to Saul. And Saul went home and David and his men went up into the stronghold. So David agrees and it'll turn out he keeps his promise. We'll find in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter and, 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 uh, 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 21. We'll come, into the, come to that later. So, Saul, so David does agree and does keep his promises. Saul goes home. David is unconvinced. <laughs> David remains in hiding. So that's uh, to uh, chapter twenty, uh, end of chapter twenty-four. David on the run. David on the run. Coming close to the end of it, um, Samuel is going to pass away in the next chapter. David. Uh, picks up so a few adventures and he picks up some wives. He again is going to, he's going to, he's going <laughs> to, sorry about that. I didn't mean to put it quite like that. David spares Saul again. And uh, once again, Saul admits his guilt and all of that. And um, we have that rather, we have the Halloween sequence coming up where Saul goes to the witch of Endor. That's going to give us a opportunity to, get some spooky insights into the occult. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Lots of lessons here. Most of them probably pretty self-evident. Opportunity is not mandate. David applies that too, doesn't he? He had the opportunity to end his problem. He's a fugitive. His life's in danger. He had a chance to kill Saul. Does he want Saul dead? Probably not really, but does he want that off his back? You bet. Whose problem is it as far as David's concerned? 
gods. You know, it's easy for us as we read this glibly from the comfort of our home or our study to uh, say, gee, David, you did good, you know. And yet uh, <laughs> we confront our own problems, and boy, how quick we are to want to pick up the cudgel and go after it. Psalm, uh, what is it, 55, 22, cast it into the Lord. As Hal Lindsay reminds me, it doesn't say hand it over politely. It says cast it into the Lord. And then leave it with him. Let God take, take charge. Let him take charge. Let him solve those problems. He will, he will see that it's done. Now, of course, David did have an advantage. He knew that he was in God's will, that God had anointed him. But you and I are probably not in a different position either. Has God got his hand on your life? Are you in his, are you in his hands? Well, it's up to you. Have you put yourself in God's hands? I mean, really. Have you committed yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If you have, then uh, uh, he's in charge. He'll take care of it. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you, Father, for your skillful custodianship of David. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us one who is after your own heart. We thank you, Father, that you have brought these lessons to us. We would ask you to send your Holy Spirit, Father, to... Give us also that courage that focuses on you. Help us, Father, to separate from all the opportunities those particular mandates that you have for us. That we, like David, might also go forth in the anointing of your Holy Spirit, that we might know that unique, specific ministry you have for each and every one of us. We would indeed ask you, Father, also, just as David was nourished by the bread from the tabernacle. Father, we would ask you too to nourish us with the bread of life, that you would just feed us upon your word, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray.